right. Uh, just a reminder that we have All Family Fellowship coming up this month. It's right coming. We're going to go out to Mommy Bay State Park, assuming there's not a uh, safety hazard or something like that going on, and spend some time together as a family. And uh, that's the only announcement I'm going to do right now. There is a team meeting today, so we'll meet in the cafeteria after a brief uh, break and have some cool things on that agenda. It'll go by pretty fast, and the agenda's only 50 minutes, I think, 50 or 60. So we'll get that done pretty quickly unless somebody brings something I'm unaware of, which supposed to get it on the agenda. So I know I'm supposed to put the agenda out a week in advance, and I don't do that. So if somebody brings something I'm unaware of, then we'll do that we can't handle it. Um, in the meantime, let us pray and worship the Lord. Let's pray together. Aaron, how about you open us in prayer? Sure. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for us having this place to come together and worship you. And thank you for those that we worship for us and uh, help guide us in worship to you. Thank you for the beautiful weather and uh, blessed us to be able to come together as a body and have friends and family here. Uh, and I pray that you would help us to get closer to you and learn from you today. And that's the name
come to that moment in time where we ask ourselves, how's the Lord been speaking? How's He been working? What have you been seeing? Um, have you come with something to share today? I hope so. Go ahead. What do you got? Okay. Alright. Video coming up. I shared a little bit of the lyrics with last week, but this is the actual whole song. I had to listen to it a few times to make sure there's no customers in it. But um, the biggest thing with this song that I've realized is it has a very good lyrics behind it, but it's also very, it's got a very good meaning too.
things that I really like about that song, for one, is when he says that sometimes God gives us hard times because that's what builds strength if you know how a muscle is designed. So you can't get stronger, you can't build muscle if you don't work through the hard times. You gotta work through the pain, you gotta work through the struggle to be able to build that muscle mass, and it's the same with our faith. In order to build our faith more, we have to work through the hard times, we have to keep pushing. And then the other line that I really liked to that was when he says maybe the wind on our back is really the push that we need to walk away from Satan. So always remember that God's pushing us forward, he's trying to make us stronger, he's trying to make us better. And you have to also understand that there are times where God looks down on this world and you have to ask that question, does he cry because of all the bad that has happened, all the things that he made, that he created, that we've destroyed? Like love and marriage and family, we've destroyed so many very valuable things and you have to you have to wonder how how does that make God feel? And if you can't say anything but He feels ashamed of us sometimes, then I I don't know. I mean, I there's days where I sit there and I wonder if the same thing if God's ashamed of me because of all the stuff that I've done. But on the flip side of that, we also know that God loves us and He cares for us and He's going to forgive us every time. However. We need to get to a point where we can stop asking for forgiveness and just do the right thing. That's good All right, anyone else? Yeah, I I've got it. Right. So I think I can. I've had something running in my head for a while. I think I can explain it a little bit. Okay. Give us an idea here. Take a quick point of it. I ran across a song come out recently. It's not a Christian song, but it's called. Out of Plata. and apparently that was like a flower that doesn't produce fruit. And this is a flower, you know. And first, you, I could see some Christian teachers maybe using this as an example of how not to be, you don't want to be out of bias, that your life should produce fruit. But the whole point of this song was that um, you may think your life is fruitless, it doesn't accomplish anything. But we're all like flowers, we're, we're born to be beautiful. And that should be beautiful. And maybe the beauty is the fruit that some, that's out of bottom, like the flower produce. And another way to look at beauty in this context, beauty, we're not talking about like a one-way model or certain style or whatever, we're talking about something way beyond that superficial stuff. Another word for beauty might be glory especially in terms of describing God. And our whole purpose for existing is to reflect God's beauty, God's glory. That's why we exist. So um, if you feel like you're just out of fire, your life's in pointless, just reflect God's beauty, let God's beauty shine through you. That may be your only purpose. That may be the fruit that you produce. So, uh, different standards of beauty down here. Mm -hmm. 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 Mm -hmm
good word. That's very encouraging. All right, anybody else? Okay, uh, Brother Mike, would you pray for us then as we transition? Father God, I want to thank you again for this day, for this place where we come to worship you. God, Lord, thank you for these words, songs, and things to ponder on, and how we put you in our daily lives and how we can be better. God, I should bless this service, be the tithes and offerings, and come to work for you. God, I should be with our pastor, because he comes to the message later on, with the teachers, with his kids. And uh, God, again, bless this time.
It is a slow one. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Um, the first time I heard this song um, was actually uh, a friend gave it to me. Um, it was the first time I heard it, and I didn't listen to it for a while. And then he performed this song at Winter Jam. Um, and at the Winter Jam, where we, RJ and I decided to take all of our children, including Zoe, at a year old, to Winter Jam. That was fun. Um, and she was just having a blast, laughing and dancing, and then this song came on, and I started crying. She laid her head on my shoulder and then went to sleep in the middle of the song. But this song hit me really hard. I had heard it before. Um, and just to ask real quick, and you can just yell it out, what is some, an instance in your life where something that happened 
or just have you had something happen where you felt like, I'm not coming back from this. It's not, I'm, I'm done. This is it. I'm done. I'm not coming back. There's nothing that can save me, nothing that can help bring me back. That's happened to me. Not, not necessarily where I thought that I wasn't going to be alive anymore, but I thought, I can't come back from this. I'm not going to get my reputation back. I'm not going to get my life back. Things are just going to be different from here on out. I have no control. The reality is we have no control. You have no control over your life. You have control over your selfish desires and the things that you do and the way you act out your life, but God has all the control. Amen. God has the control to step in and pull you out and keep you going if he has a plan for you. And this song, he's not done with you. If you're still here and you woke up breathing this morning, he's not done. Amen. And um, the, this song sticks out in my mind every time I feel like I can't do it anymore. God's not done if I'm still breathing.
Innovation is an interesting thing. It's been happening and it almost seems like it's escalating in speed as we near uh, the time of Jesus' coming again. Uh, did you realize, do you realize as you're sitting here today that less than uh, 80 years ago, and I don't know what year, for example, I, I, I tried to look it up, but I guess we don't rate for this kind of thing, but less than 80 years ago, if you went down Wheeling Road in Oregon here, there was no indoor plumbing. Isn't that amazing? Outhouses. They hadn't run the pipes, the pipes yet uh, down Wheeling Road going out that way. Um, I know a woman who lived there, and they had no indoor plumbing. And, and during her lifetime, and she's uh, still alive now, in her lifetime they built indoor plumbing in their house, had to pay the, plum, the, the water company to come and run the pipe to run it to their house so they could have indoor plumbing. We now carry around a small phone, not so small, most of us, uh, in our pockets that can do more processing than uh, whole rooms of computers that were used to launch most of the early space missions. The mission that went to the moon, the computer was bigger than this room, almost twice as big as this room. And it, it ran off of uh, cardboard cardstock with holes punched in it. And they would punch the holes and then they would feed it in. That's how they program the computer. And then they would get the readouts. And now we carry around in our pockets for $100, $150, $200, uh, you can carry around a phone that can do more computations than that computer could do. Innovation is a very interesting thing, and it seems to be moving very rapidly as we get near to Jesus' coming again, so rapidly that it almost kind of feels like it's out of control. Good things happen, good things are invented, and not everything is good. Uh, there's a big question right now about artificial intelligence driving cars. There's a meme that's going around the internet that I saw the other day about a, a girl and her boyfriend doing some things that one should not be doing in the car probably at all while their car was autopiloting itself down the expressway. And it even got to the point that um, Elon himself commented on her Facebook meme of what she had done. And he said, I guess we didn't anticipate everything that people might be doing while the autopilot was driving. Innovation. Ten years ago, that was impossible. Ten years ago, it was impossible to create a car for artificial intelligence. Ten years ago, it was impossible to, to create an upright walking robot, a robot that had two legs like a human being. They couldn't do it. And Google offered a $2 million reward uh, for anyone who could create an artificial intelligence who could beat the world chess champion. Or, I'm sorry, the world Go champion. I said the wrong game. Because Go has so many billions of permutations once you start the game. It is one of, it's the most complex game with that, in that regards. And they said, if you can create an artificial intelligence that can beat him, we'll give you $2 million. And then in the 2000s, 2005, 2008, something like that, someone invented one. And they believed that that's what was needed in order to create an upright walking robot because there are so many variables, so many factors, balance, and muscles, and tendons, and things that humans use that nothing could be created walking upright until an AI that could handle that many variables could be created. And then that same AI, then the, the, the car manufacturers, a couple of them, had already filed patents for intelligent cars way in advance of that being invented. We are not only innovating at an incredible speed, maybe some would say too fast, but on top of that, people are anticipating innovations that are not here yet. We're expecting things to be changed and adjusted that are not even here yet. And every day, I'm surprised by what technology can do, uh, so different from what it was. And 
at the same time, they're anticipating what's yet coming. As things get smaller and smaller and smaller, they are actually using robots that are so small that you can barely see them to do microsurgeries inside the human body, controlling them by frequencies, or command frequencies. And then that, those robots will go in and fix things in the human body. Now, that, again, is based on that incredible AI that is meant, and now they think, there's a, a theory going around that they've actually created an AI that may have developed its own personality. It starts to sound like science fiction. Innovation is so far ahead of what we would have thought would have been possible. Now, is it necessary? Is it good? Well, human beings dream, they imagine, they get excited about what could be, and they pit themselves to creating something or to understanding something in a new and different way. I think it's part of what we were created in God's image to do that, to change our surroundings and to change ourselves to a degree because we find fault in ourselves or we find a way that we could improve. And so when I was in college, uh, I, I learned this very valuable lesson, which was that when you go to college, you don't learn much, despite what everybody thinks. The number one thing that you learn when you go to college is to be a lifetime learner, to always be learning. And so if you could not go to college and yet be a lifetime learner, as, say, uh, Einstein did, then you could be an incredible mind, always innovating, always adjusting, always imagining, always recreating yourself, figuring things out. I want you to keep that in mind, then, as we look at this scripture. And I'm going to give you just kind of like the back end of it for a second. God was saying that there is something that I'm going to reveal to you that does not need any innovation. I'm going to give it to you the way it already needs to be, and there's no innovation needed because God understood the human mind. They would always be innovating and creating new and adjusting and so on, but it was made good the way it was. It did not need to be innovated. Okay? And so grab your Bibles if you would and turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we read just a little bit of this, and you'll recall that uh, Moses had, had been recounting the uh, what had happened or how the Israelites had sort of gotten off course. And, and, and at the end of th chapter 3, it says in verse 29, so we remain in the valley opposite Beth Beor. And then I mentioned to you last week about how that was a really significant time for them, but he doesn't mention what happened there, that 24,000 men were killed because... They got involved with the Midianites' women and started worshiping false gods and things like that. He doesn't mention that, but he goes right from there into talking about the law and teaching the laws, the statutes of God. Okay, So here we are, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. And that was the sort of deal that I talked about last week that God had proposed. So I am teaching you to perform these in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. And there it is, that, that straight up statement. You don't add and you don't take away. What I'm giving you is already perfect. It's good. It's, it's there. You don't need to fix it. You don't need to innovate on it. Verse 3. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. And there's that mention of it. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgment just as the Lord my God commanded me 
that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So you're still alive. You survived the Alpior. You survived the time in the wilderness. You survived the initial conquering of all the lands east of the Jordan. You survived all, you made it to this point. Now just listen to me and work off of what I give you. Don't try to fix it. Don't try to add to it. Then he goes, verse six, so keep and do them for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So in other words, they would look at the Israelites who were following God's commands, his statutes, his ordinances, and so on, and they would say, wow, that's a wise law. That's really good stuff. And the people of the world would be attracted to them. And that does indeed happen on multiple occasions in the, when they are actually following the teachings of God, that the people of the world look to them and see it as phenomenal wisdom. And I submit to you today that the true teachings of God still are phenomenal wisdom. There's a reason why people don't accept them, but the bottom line is, if they would just, somebody, uh, I was watching a movie last night with my wife, and there was a scene where this little girl, she was asking whether God exists or not, and he was saying he wasn't sure if God exists, and he's not sure if anyone was sure, and she said, well, so-and-so sure, and he said, well, yeah, that's faith, she has faith, she's sure because she has faith, but... If, if you're talking about just in the way of reason and like that, that's it's hard to know for sure if God, God exists. But if you have faith, then you can know for sure that God exists, basically, right? But she asked him and she said, um, what about Jesus? She said, what about that guy, Jesus? And he said, yeah, love that guy. Do everything he says. That was his response. And even though he's having a hard time with his own faith and understanding who God is and whatever, she says, what about Jesus? And he says, yeah, love that guy. Do whatever he says. The great teachings of God made clear to us our great wisdom. Um, the guy who does hot shots on um, Right Now Media, he does five-minute videos about some question of apologetics. And it would be like, why does suffering exist? Or what, what's the answer to this one question? He was an atheist. And he says he got to be older. And after he picked on everybody he knew who was a Christian, and he really was mean to them and whatever, he thought, well, I need some wisdom for my life. Where can I go and look? And so he said, well, Jesus was probably the wisest man to ever live. I'm going to go look there. And he started reading the teachings of Jesus and understanding the wisdom that was involved. And he, and he came to believe in Christ. He said, ah, wow, he really is who he says he is. And I need to do something about that. Jesus is not only the wisest man to ever live, not Solomon, but Jesus was the wisest man to ever live. Not only that, but when someone begins to understand his wisdom, they can be saved from themselves, from their sin, from the trap, the evil of this world that, that causes the soul to be in, ultimately in eternal torment. So people, he was saying, if you would follow this, people will look at this great nation and say, this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call him? Now hold up a second. Because a minute ago, I'm talking to you about like the wisdom that they would have and how people would look at them and say how wise they are, the awesome law, right? The righteousness, the instruction is so good. But notice how when they do look at the wisdom of this people, what's the first thing they see? They say this people is wise and well-instructed where they're righteous, but they're not righteous because they, they have the rules, because the rules are good, but they're righteous because of their closeness to God, how close their God is to them, Right? That's what the people see when they look at the Christians or godly people, in this case it was the Israelites, and they, and they see how close God is to them. Verse 8 says, Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments 
as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today. See, God had made clear to them what they needed to know, and people would see that and realize how God, how close God was to them and how awesome this law was. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. There's an important phrase in there, keep your soul diligently, and I'll come back and break that down in a minute. In a minute. But the bottom line is, God was saying to them, you have a job to do, you have a part to play in this. He says, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. So this law, these statutes that God was teaching, God was commanding them to follow them and to be diligent, keep their soul, and then to teach them to their sons and grandsons. Verse 10 says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. And you came near, he's talking to all the people, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire, the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but you saw no form, only a voice. Right, So he's making, this is what's called a polemic. He's making an argument for something. In a second, we'll get there. But notice what just happened. He's reminding them of how they stood at Horeb. That's where they received the Ten Commandments. And they could see the fire and the gloom and the smoke on the mountain. They were told not to touch the mountain because they would surely be destroyed. They were told not to come up on the mountain because they would surely be destroyed. But they were able to be around the mountain and experience God's awesome presence and what this was like. And he's reminding them of that. And he's making an argument out of that and said, and saying, you were there and you saw this, and because you saw this, there's something that you should do, or should not do in this case. Verse 13, so he, that's God, declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. So God gave them that, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So they know all this. He's recapping all this for them. Now watch this. In 15 it says, So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire. So there was no form in there that was discernible. They didn't see any picture, any image of face, uh, the head of a cow, no, no form, no shape of a being was discernible in the midst of the fire. You didn't see the likeness of any animal. Okay, hold on a second. So it says, I'll go back to 15. So watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form on the day of the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware, lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So basically what he's saying is, don't get into idolatry. Don't worship anything else. And to worship is to declare something is good. But he's not stopping at worship. He says, if you may worship it and you may also serve it. Right? So worshiping it would be declaring it's good. Is the sunset good? Yeah, it's gorgeous. You see that sunset the other night? It was amazing. Is the sunrise good? Yeah, it's awesome. Most of us don't see it, but when you get a chance to, man, it's incredible the sunrise. Right? 
Are the stars amazing? Yes, yeah, stars are amazing. Rainbows, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Rain, absolutely amazing. Are animals amazing? Yes, absolutely. But he's saying, don't make any likeness of anything to worship or declare the worth of that is in creation. No matter how good and how awesome, not the sun or the moon or the stars, no matter how good and how, no matter how awesome it is, there's glory there, but don't get into worshiping it. But he doesn't stop there. He says, don't get into serving it. Right? So he's warning not to worship or serve anything that is in creation. And then he closes out his polemic or his argument this way. He says, those things which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So who gets cows and dogs and, and, and snakes and dragons back when there was dragons, right? Or unicorns. And you say, no, no unicorns, but read your Bible. Back when there was unicorns or, or stars, sun, moon, all of that. Who gets those things? Well, all of men do. In fact, we've been destroying them, right? We've been actively destroying creation for centuries, now millennia. People have been actively destroying creation. So who was it given to to subdue the earth and rule over it? All mankind. Was it only the saved to subdue, subdue and rule over it? No. In, we were all present, sinners and saved alike, in Adam. And so the province over all humanity was given to all mankind. And so it's no difference. So when you worship the sun, you are worshiping something that was given to all mankind. When you serve the sun, you serve something that was given to all mankind. Right? So if I own, if I own a car, right? And you come and worship my car. Who is getting the worship? Who owns the thing that you're worshiping? And therefore, who is in charge of you? Right? Say you want to worship my van. And you come to my house and my van's not in the driveway. And you're like, oh, crud. Dan, where's the van? I got to worship the van. It's at the life station. So you drive to the life station. But by the time you get there, I've moved the van. You took a little while. By the time you get there, I've moved the van. You go, Dan, where's the van? I need to worship. Well, it's at the mechanic. Oh, okay. Well, I got to go. I'm going to go lay incense at the van's feet. Right? See how stupid this is? Mankind owns all of creation, and if you go to worship it, you basically fall under the control of mankind. You say, well, this would never happen. Watch out. What about money? People pursue money. They get a job. i got to pay my bills. But now I realize that I can have enough to pay my bills and also have some nice things, too. I can eat well. I can take time off. I can take my leisure, leisure activities, right? I can enjoy my recreation. If I get enough money, I can do those things. So you go after the money, declaring the worth of the money. You serve the money. You say, well, no, I serve my boss. That's not actually true. You, you're serving the money. It's an object. You're after that. If your boss tells you to do something that you don't want to do, you can go serve another boss, but you're still after the money, right? So you got to be careful. So what do you do? You put money in its place. You get it under control. You put it under God's control. You tithe, you budget, you spending plan. You, you get it out of the way. It's no longer in charge of me. I'm not worried about money anymore because I've got it in its place, its proper place. All right? But if you go after the money, don't kid yourself, the one who has the money is going to own you. They're going to rule you. and say, but they're so far distant. I still get my house. You pay taxes. So the government's still going to make you pay taxes on your house. Even when it's paid off, you're still going to pay taxes. Bottom line is, 
Anything that's in creation, if it gets your attention, if it gets your worship, if you begin to serve it, then whoever has it is in charge. That's why the old saying is, he who has the gold makes the rules. But is that actually true? Or is it he who made the gold that makes the rules? All right, back on task. One verse, last verse. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. God had taken this, the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Now, I'm not going to dwell on that because he's going to talk about it later. RJ may get to that or I may get to that later, whatever. He's going to talk more about that later. But there is a phrase in there that I want you to see. It occurs only three times in the Bible. And it's over in uh, uh, Kings and then it's over in Jeremiah. And we may look at that for a second. But the bottom line is it's that phrase, the iron furnace. Best translated in English, probably the iron furnace. Uh, but what does it mean? It's a furnace for making iron, not a furnace made of iron, right? So it's a big pot. You put the raw stuff in there and you heat it up so hot. It'd kill you. It's horrible. You can't go in there. Uh, to this day in foundries, they have these giant, I mean, thick walled pots. And they put the metal in there and melt it down. And when one of those pots gives way, men die. Just by being within a hundred feet. You don't have to be next to it. Then they'll fall on you. Right? It's so hot that you will die if you're just within a hundred feet of it when it gives away. That's how hot it is. And that's the, that's what God used to compare what they went through in Egypt. God says, that's where you were at. You were in the iron furnace. Was it painful? Yes, yeah, painful. In fact, it was terrible. Lots of you died. Right? I kept you in the iron furnace, you could say this, for 430 years. <laughs> right? You were in the iron furnace. But now, as a people, you've come out of the iron furnace. And whatever's been in that iron furnace, when it cools down, it's hard. It's strong. Right? It's in there to get the impurities cooked out of it. You should be ready. You should be able to stomach this. Maybe no other nation on the face of the earth can stomach this, but you should be ready to stomach this and stand your ground and do what's right because you were in the iron furnace. All right. So that's the text for, the, for today. That's kind of three things I want you to see in there. The first one is, there are some characteristics of God that are laid out in this text. Now, by no means are they the only characteristics of God. Okay, And even later in this chapter, he'll get on to some more. But the characteristics of God that are laid out in this text are part of the arguments for what we should do based on this text. So first of all, notice <clears throat> that the characteristics of God include that he is near. When people look at us... When people look at Brother Tony Tate, or Karina, or Pastor Dan, or Tommy, they should see that we are a people near to God. Now, I have a problem with that. I have a problem with that because a lot of people who are in the church, most of the time they're living their lives out in the world, are acting like they're not near to God. Now, they're not following the rules that God has laid out. The instructions that God has given them, the steps that he, they're supposed to take. And maybe they're not doing anything that is particularly wrong at that moment in time. They might not be cussing up a storm or punching somebody in the face or drinking themselves drunk. They might not be doing any of those things that the world would clearly indicate are wrong. But they're also not standing up for a higher level of righteousness and truth so that people would go, wow, look at how that guy's close with God. Christians watch more movies 
than they do read their Bible. Christians talk about sports, recreation activities, and everything else more than they do about Jesus. I'm just being plain. If you are in the presence of God, if your God is near you and you know it, then that calls for a certain kind of holy behavior. And I don't see it most of the time. I'm not judging people and saying they're unsaved. It's nothing like that. I make the same mistakes. right. But if God is near, if that is his trait, if I am standing there and God is standing in me, I would say with me. For them it was with them. But for us it is in us. If God is in you, then there are some behaviors that you cannot engage in. There are things that you cannot do if God is there. You will feel awkward to say the least. When people come over to my house, if they sit in my living room and talk with me or play a game or whatever, they don't use foul language. And they're like, it isn't because God is there necessarily because some of them are not saved. But if they use foul language, I will say to them, I'm sorry, we don't talk like that here. I'll ask you not to talk like that here. I have great respect for certain people, but it doesn't matter who it is. If my mother is in my house and uses foul language, I would say, Mom, I'm sorry, we don't talk like that here. Now you have two choices. You can stop talking like that or you can leave. Now I wouldn't go that far until they have evidence that they don't want to stop, right? And that's just me. I'm just an ordinary guy. They don't have to listen to me. They can leave. God, on the other hand, is not ordinary. You do have to listen. Right? And if you continue to behave that way, as if he is not near, understand, you are leaving. It's not that God is leaving. Eventually, God is hoping that you will look around and find that he was always near. He is still near. He is near to you. And so when you behave as if he is not near, all you're doing is walking. You're continually walking away from him. He's chasing you. He's following you. But what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you engaged in this destructive behavior? God is near. When people start to realize that Christians' God is near, then again they will look at the teachings of Christianity and realize that they're right. But if you keep acting like God is not near, even though He is, they're not going to look at you and go, man, I wish I was a Christian. No one's going to do that. Secondly, notice that in this passage of Scripture that God is known. There's a lot of talk about God, even when we get around to it, right? There's not enough, but when we get around to it, there's a lot of talk about God. And we talk about God like, well, I think, or maybe, right? God is known. God is known in this. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, and came in the flesh, because that was God the son, to die on the cross. God died on the cross, an event that is historical and nobody denies it. And then was seen alive later, right? And nobody denies that. Those that do deny it are denying it in the face of historians who lived in that day, even those who objected to Jesus and didn't agree with Jesus, but admitted that, yes, he died on the cross and was seen again later. Now, they may attribute that he did that by the power of the devil or by some other trickery or whatever, but they will say, yeah, we saw him die on the cross and he he was alive again later. Historians from that day. And the people that are living now have innovated or found a way to say that even though there were historians who disagreed with Jesus and they saw that happen and they were alive in both instances, I still don't think it actually happened, right? And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would they do that? Have you watched the news? You can watch two news channels and one gives an eyewitness account and this is what happened. Another one gives an eyewitness account and this is what happened and they are not the same. We're living in a day when there's so much testimony about what's true 
And so much of testimony about what's true is not even true. And so if that's the way it is in our day, then we think that may have been the way it is back in his day, and people can argue that Jesus didn't die on the cross and he didn't raise again, when in fact he did. We know who God is, and we know some things, many things, about God. And we can behave as if God is our friend, because he is. As if God is our father, because he is. As if God is near to us, because he is. If you're a follower of Lord Jesus Christ, he is near and he is known. Stop acting like you don't know what God wants you to do, because you do. All we do is innovate and act like we don't know what God wants us to do so that we can escape or excuse ourselves from doing what it is that God has called us to do. If you don't know what it is that God wants you to do, then I suggest that you read the Bible and pray and listen and take notes or whatever because God is speaking and God has a plan for you. Yes. Is it a, you've got to do this and this, 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 and this, and this order plan? No, that may be the way it is with God's perfect will, but God's permissive will is much broader than that. It includes love and compassion. It includes the fruit of the Spirit. It includes spreading the gospel. It includes standing up, being responsible, being steadfast, and so on. God is near and He is known. Third, and this one will kind of sort of blow your mind, and that is God is seen. God is a spirit, right? So the Bible says, who has seen Him? Well, I submit to you, they had seen Him. But what did they see when they saw Him? And like, well, he, God was hiding in the cloud. We didn't actually see the God because he was hiding in the smoke, you know. So we want to see what, so we think he looked like a cow. So we're going to make a cow or worship the cow or actually worshiping God. We're not trying to worship a different God. We're going to worship our God by making a cow, right? Because we looked at the smoke. We didn't see, no, he says, because when you looked in there, this is seeing God. Seeing God is seeing something that is bigger than you and hard to understand. And yes, scary in a way, but if you look deeply into God, you will see God. Not like with your eyes, but with your soul. In their case, they saw smoke and fire and billowing and noise and all that was there, and they saw God. And the fact of what they saw, because they couldn't make it out exactly, that was it. I mean, if they wanted to make an idol, at least they should have made an idol of an amorphous cloud that was swirling or something, which was way beyond their technology, right? The point is, God is seen. And this would be heretical if it weren't in Scripture. But if you're here and you've been saved, you've seen God. Now, not seen Him with your eyes, but you've experienced Him with your senses, firsthand, first person. Why are you acting like you haven't? Why are certain behaviors tolerable to you that clearly stand opposite the fact that you have personally experienced the living God? God is near, He is known, and He is seen. But here's the problem. He's overall different. For me to go to somebody and say, I know God, I have seen God, I, God is near and present, and then, then they can say, well, what does God look like exactly? Is he Caucasian? No. Is he African American? No. Is he mixed? No. Does he, does he have flesh? Well, no, not really. Not such as you would think of it. Well, then we say, okay, well, God is spirit. Oh, okay, well, you can't know God. I get it. No, no, I know him. I have experienced him. I have seen him. I have felt him. I have been in his presence. He is near to me. I know him. Well, then tell me what he's like. I can't because he is 
outside human language. He is outside our understanding. His ways are so far above our ways. It's the very thing. So like, if, if you could know everything in existence, as far as the stars go, and every creature that ever has existed, if any uh, creatures of any kind have ever existed on other planets, which is probably the case, I would think, I don't know, but if you could know it all, know it all, know it all, that would be just short of knowing God. Just short, only just barely short. I mean, infinitesimally small space between that and knowing God, but it would be not knowing God. Because God is different from all of it. All, he is unique. All the glory that is in a sunset and all the glory that has ever been in any sunset or ever will be in any sunset. Put all that together and it becomes enough to begin to give glory to God. You see? All the, not an animal, or not generically cows, or generically snakes, or generically dragons, but all the animals that ever lived, and all the glory, and all the testimony that they give to God, begins, just begins, to give God the glory that He deserves. He is altogether different. I get that. I have had a hard time in conversation explaining to people. And they say, well, do you know God? Or, yes, I know Him. No, you don't. How can anyone know God? I mean, he's so deep. Yeah, I, I understand. He's altogether different. And every time I know him, I realize there is so much more to know, right? I know everybody in this room, but you know how many people I can tell you what their favorite color is? I could guess maybe three. That's it. I know everybody in this room, but you know how many people I could tell you off the top of my head their favorite snack? I know you, but I don't know everything about you. And you're human. You're limited, finite. God is infinite. So I know God but I know there is more to God to know. You have a problem with that? Because that's who God is. If you have a problem with that, then you don't know God. But then people will say, well, all you're saying is people can't know God. No, it's the exact opposite of what I'm saying. I'm saying God will make you able to know Him if you will trust Jesus Christ, God's Son. And lastly, and maybe most importantly of all of this, He is right. God is right. We call it righteous. Correct? He is true. He's never wrong. Never ever wrong. Never has been, never will be ever wrong. He is right. He is right in every way. And if you ever have a question or a debate with yourself about whether you want to do what you want to do or what God seems to want you to do, you would be better off to do what God seems to want you to do and fail at it than you would be to do what you want to do and succeed at it. You'd be better off to do what God seems to want you to do and fail at it than to Spend a little while longer trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. God is right. He is infinitely right. So these traits are present in this text very clearly. He is near, he is known, he is seen. He is overall different. And he is righteous. While there are other traits of God, and some of them might be more intricate or specific, these ones are enough to demand certain actions from the Israelites, and I submit from us as well. And these actions are these. Number one, we are to give heed and keep our soul diligently. Don't forget and make him known to our sons and our grandsons, which means to every generation yet coming. Give heed. Keep your soul diligently. Don't forget and make Him known. I submit to you, this is like the higher calling of humanity. God has entrusted, so 
By the way, do you remember Genesis when Adam was created? So Adam was cast out of the dust, right? The, the, the dirt. God made him out of the ground. And then there he is, laying on the ground. He's a, he's a body. A naked body, even. No money, no retirement account, no car, no need for any of that stuff. No sin. No life. No personality. No creativity. No innovation. He's just a body made out of dirt. That's it. And then God flicked him in the forehead and jumped up to life, right? Or God said, Adam, rise! And jumped up to life, right? No. What did he do? How did he bring that dirt to life? Say it. He breathed breath of life into Adam. A soul, which was, if you will, the breath of God, entered into Adam. Your soul was entrusted to you by the God of heaven. You have this sacred responsibility because he is near, because he is known, because he is seen, because he is altogether different, and because he is always right. You have this sacred responsibility to give heed to all the things that you have seen and experienced, how you have known him, how you have known that he is near, how you have experienced God, all the things that you've been taught. You have, you have to give heed to those things. You have to never forget those things and make known those things, all the while keeping your soul diligently. It's a job. Diligently means working hard at it. Make schedules if schedules are necessary. Take notes if that's necessary. Set apart time. Sweat. Bleed if necessary. To keep your soul. Innovation invades. It, it proliferates. People got ideas. Well, I think this. Wow, yeah, that's a great idea. I got this. Oh, man, that excites me. I'm sitting in my living room last night, and for the first time I found out that you can tell Alexa to play a song, a thing called The Group Everywhere. And if you do, then all of your devices that are Alexa-enabled will play it all at the same time. We did it accidentally. All of a sudden, we have an Echo Dot on our walls playing, a TV's playing, because we have a... Uh, Amazon smart TV, just like the Bristers have. We have almost the same TV, by the way. It's coincidental. But anyway, and then we have an Echo on there, and then Sherry's phone was there, and all the, all the devices are playing the same song at the same time. And then Sherry kept shutting hers off, and it was interfering, and we, but we figured out, I learned, the, it's innovation. I was like, that's so cool! So then I did it like four more times in a row, because that's so cool. It really is cool to be able to do that. And we were singing the songs at the top of our lungs and just having a good old time because innovation is fun. Innovation is exciting, whatever. But innovation comes out of your, the image of God that you were created to be because you're a creator, but your soul is literally what's at stake. Your response to what happens is what's at stake. Nudie bars where guys go and drink themselves silly watching girls dance in the buff, that's an innovation. But it's an innovation that goes back pretty far pretty far, right? Except back in the day, it was always slaves, typically, that they would use, or women who were owned, right? Where now women actually go out and do that to make the money, because they're a slave to the money. Abortion, as we know it, was an innovation. Now, indoor plumbing is an innovation. You're like, oh, no, indoor plumbing, yeah, that's a good one, right? I've got to have indoor plumbing. But do you have to have indoor plumbing? Or you just really like it? Right? Air conditioning. Air conditioning was an innovation. Do you have to have? I hope not, because we don't have it. 
I don't have it in my house. We got some portable ones in the window. In this building, we don't have it at all. Right? These are all things. And what happens is you get latched on to them and you can't get what you're trying to get. You can't get where you're trying to get because of the innovation. Keep your soul diligently. Here's what you need. I'm, here's what you really, really need. You and God alone. You don't need clothing. You don't even need food. Jesus didn't prove that. Moses didn't prove that. Jesus said, I have food of which you know not. You don't even need food. You need you and God. That's it. And in eternity, that will result in a very fine eternal existence. Whereas if you have all of these other things, if you have one of everything, if you can collect one of everything that has ever existed, including your own planet, right? If you collect one of everything that ever existed, you'd wind up in hell and burn for eternity after all that stuff was gone. You just need you and God. That's it. Now, there are some very good things that God has provided, and these are given to us to enjoy. The church is an example of that. We as a people are trying to learn together that we just need God. You need to diligently keep your soul. You need to. And explain that very simple truth. You don't need sports. You don't need games. You don't need education. You don't need food. You don't need any of it. And the problem is in America, we're being constantly brainwashed to think that we need all this stuff. And you don't. You can walk to worship. You don't need a vehicle. You don't. If your vehicle breaks down, you can go to worship anyway. I've done it. And you don't have to have a bike, although that will make it more convenient. Keep your soul in the midst of all of this. So what do you got to do? You got to have a moment in time where you get down to my soul is my most important thing. And that's what I talked about last week. There's a moment in time in which you said, I realize my soul is essentially dead. And I'm trusting in Jesus and he's going to make it alive. And he does. He brings you life. It's called being born again. And from that moment on, you should always know. Why? Because you have seen him. Because you have known him. Because he is near. Because he is overall different. And he is always right. From that point in time, you should know, I have to keep my soul. I must diligently expose my soul to the things of God and protect it from the things of the world. Secondly, and this one I don't think you'll be surprised at, is don't idle. I-D-O-L. Don't do it. Don't idle. Verse uh, Chapter 4, which we just read, beginning in verse 15, said it this way. So watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth, and... Beware, lest you lift up your eyes to the heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Don't idle. Don't do it. Back to verses 2 through 4. He said, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor. For all the men who followed Baal Peor, the Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. Notice I combined do not idle with the don't add or subtract from the word. They're the same thing. And this is what's happened in the world. 
If you don't believe me, check the, check the news. Watch what's going on in the world. What people do, do is they want to justify their activity, so then they adjust the word of God. And they say, well, that doesn't really mean what you say it means. And God said, do not add nor subtract. If you will just take the word of God as the word of God, you will be admitting that God is right. That he is overall different and above all. That he can be seen and known and he is near. Just take the word of God for what it says. Just read it for what it says. Take it for what it says and let it be what it says. But if you want God to let you get into idol worship and declare the worth of other things, or to let you pollute yourself with some man-made innovation that has nothing to do with what he wants for you, then you understand you're denying the fact that he is right. You're denying the fact that he is overall different. You're denying the fact that he is seen, known, and near. And I submit to you that means you probably don't know him at all. And that's what happened at Baal Peor. And that's why 24,000 men died that day. The Israelites came out of the iron furnace, that great crucible that would transform them. Have you ever been in a tough spot? Have you ever been in a tougher spot than you're in right now? I preached a sermon about three years ago about Jonah. And one of the great things that I learned from that book in chapter three when he's begging God is that it's always the worst place. He essentially realizes there's always somewhere worse in the midst of a fish being digested, in the process of being digested, trapped under the water, never to see mankind again, about to die, covered in ick, being literally digested, he realizes that he is still better off than people who are not with God because God was there with him. He turns to God. He says, I know you are all-powerful. I know you are near. I have known you. I have seen you. I know you are right. I will do what you have asked me to do. And the fish vomits him out onto shore. And you say, well, he walked to the city of Nineveh. He was better off when he was walking to the city of Nineveh than he was when he was in the fish. And that's true. But that fish was his iron furnace. Egypt was Israel's iron furnace. I don't know what your iron furnace was. But I know that God brought you to a point of realizing that you don't want to be there, not without God. You don't want to do that. God kept them in there for 430 years while the people of the land that they're now invading, while their wickedness was rising and rising, while their innovations were getting worse and worse, while their souls were getting dirtier and dirtier and more corrupt, until finally they are wiping out the people of the promised land and taking their place because they did not, wait for it, keep their souls. They did not diligently keep their souls. They did not make known the people, the problem, what do you think they came from? They're descendants of Adam and Eve. Some of them are descendants of Moses. They're descendants of Abraham in some cases. They don't know their lineage. They're sons of Esau and Lot and whatever. They're intermixed peoples. They have a lineage that goes all, they're God's people. The people that are being wiped out are God's people, and the people that are being brought in to wipe them out are God's people. And later, when the Babylonians are used to wipe out the Israelites' nation, they too are God's people. They all came from Adam and Eve. They all have a soul. They all have the breath of God inside them. Give heed and keep diligent your soul, and don't idle. Don't look at what the world wants and let it be good to you. Don't do it, because a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Now, am I saying that you should be mean or that you should be 
abusive to people around you who disagree with your the teachings of God? No. Am I saying that you should teach the teachings of God? Yes. I submit to you that most of us don't even know, and I'm probably amongst this group, know enough of the teachings of God to really bring them into a conversation in an intelligent way. We need to repent and get back to realizing that God is right. And people say, well, the world says you should be allowed to do X, whatever it is. They should be allowed to do it if they want to. But God's word says no. And if God's word clearly says no, then that settles it because God is right. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not or whether they like it or not. He's right. That's it. It's settled. Now, if you can't find it in his word, examples might be smoking, for example, right? It still can be right or wrong. If it's harming you, if it's destroying your body, if you're addicted to it, it's wrong because you have another master in your life and you should get rid of it. How you get, how you have that in your life and it's not an addiction, it's not controlling you, I don't know. But I'm not making that up. That's what God's word says. No other gods before me or in my presence. Nothing else can be Lord of your life. Is it hard to be a Christian? No, it's easy. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, submit to him and receive it. All right? He is already near. He desires you. Now, having been a Christian, diligently keep your soul so that in the land that he has now given you, you may prosper and succeed. And don't idle. Don't latch on to innovations of men or things that come along. Don't let people adjust the word of God. I got a, a person that I could call them up right now and they would argue with me about a passage in the New Testament scripture that we disagree on. And I, and I just tell them, I, I, I hear you. I just don't agree with you. This is clearly what it says and you want to alter it and make it say something different to make your way of living acceptable. And I just can't agree. I won't. I go by what it says, not by what you say it says, but what it actually says. And that's how we should be living. Brings us to our conclusion. Let me recap briefly. Number one, the traits of God. He is near. He is known. He is seen. He is overall different. He is right. There are other traits as well, but that's what's in this passage of scripture. And out of that comes, we should keep our soul diligently, give heed unto God. Don't forget what we have seen and make known the truths of what we have seen and what we've learned from God to our sons and our grandsons. Learning to fear God and revere Him, love Him. And then don't idle. Don't make something in creation important. Don't latch on to it and go, okay, well this is going to guide me, this is going to lead me, this is going to take care of me. Because as soon as you do that, that thing belongs in creation, which means it belongs to somebody else, not, not just God. It all belongs to God, but you will be submitting yourself to others. And in case you're wondering whether or not these things apply to us, first of all, Titus 2. I'm going to read three verses, and then we'll be through. It's actually four verses. Titus 2, verse 14, says this. It's in the middle of a sentence, but I'm just going to pick it up right there. And it says, who, talking about Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's what it was all about. That's what the beginning of Christianity as we know it is all about. If you go back to verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, we know it, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. See, there it is. 
looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's exactly what God was doing with Israel. And we are the modern day Israel. We are the church. We are the people whom God has claimed for himself. And we should know that he is near, known, seen, altogether different and right. And therefore, keep our souls diligently and not idle. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. He even goes on to say, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what God was doing with Israel. This is what God is doing with the church today. Will you follow the Lord? Will you guard your soul? Will you diligently work to keep your soul? Make Him known to the sons and grandsons. Take heed to what you've seen and what you know of Him. And do not idle, either by worshiping something in creation and serving it, or by adding and subtracting from his word. And then the very end of the Bible, basically, if there, ever, if there is an end, the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, verses 18 to 19. The author says this, He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away this part, his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. You want to be saved? You want to live for the Lord? You want to be eternal? You want to get heaven and the new heaven and the new earth ultimately? Don't idle. Don't take away from God's word and don't add to God's word. He is near. He is known. He is seen. He is altogether different. And He is right. Do not hedge your bets and try to walk in both worlds. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, here's what you need to do. Just walk in both worlds. One foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. And you get the benefits of both. You get the benefits of the kingdom because God's people will treat you with a lot of respect. And you get the benefits of the world because you'll still get the things of the world. And then later he says, don't do that. He said, being the wisest man who ever lived, he said, do that. And then he said, don't do that. I tried it. You'll be destroyed. It'll rip you in two. Do not idle. Do not give up God's word. Don't walk, in fact, I would encourage you, don't walk into conversations about important issues not knowing what God's word says on that topic. How are you going to do that? You're going to have to study it. You're going to have to know it. You're going to have to live it. Will you go, if you go unprepared, will God give you something to say? Probably, if you love Him. The Word says, don't worry about being unprepared. I will give you, when you're called in front of kings, where I'll give you the right thing to say. Don't worry about that. Of course, they didn't have the New Testament when that was written. Let God speak through you. Do not idle. There are good things on this earth. I'm sorry to say, before we're through, before Jesus comes again, or after Jesus comes again, if you don't go when He comes, most of it's all going to be gone. In Revelation, the Bible talks about a famine that will destroy 40% of the world's population. 
and everyone will be hungry. And every man will spend a day's wage to buy a quart of grain so that you can survive for another day. So you'll work all day to get enough money to buy enough food to live one more day. That's not where we're living right now. It's bad where we're living right now in a lot of ways. But that is not where we're living right now. You can make more than enough money in one day to buy enough food to survive for one day. But that's what it's going to be like. You don't need money and you don't need food and you don't need half or 99% of what you have. You do need God. Diligently guard your soul and do not idle. If he's near, act like he's near. If he's known, act like he's known. If he's seen, act like he's seen. If he's altogether different, let's act like he's altogether different. If he's right, let's act like he's right. Father, help us. <laughs> we believe we are your church. We want to be your church. We know that we are called to be a special people. We know that we are called to be your possession, your children. We know that we are called to be a pillar of truth, to stand up for what's right, to grow ourselves and guard our souls. We know that ultimately if we are saved and born again, truly yours, you will keep us. Nothing can take out of your hand that which is in your hand. You will keep us. You will guard us for an eternity. But we understand that we have been commanded, we have been asked to guard our souls. And we should be the keeper of our own soul. That means we shouldn't be watching what we shouldn't be watching. We shouldn't be doing what we shouldn't be doing. We shouldn't be around when others are doing what they shouldn't be doing. And we should be standing up for what's right rather than going, ah, well... No one thinks it's a big deal. Lord, help us be your people. Help us stand up for you and guard our souls. Not a polluted soul, not a broken soul or a torn up soul, but a soul wholly and completely devoted to our God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward at this time then and lead our closing hymn. This is also a hymn of reflection, a hymn of response. If you're here today and you realize that you've not been guarding your soul, that you're committing yourself to do so from here on out, then you respond. You let us know that that's the case. If you realize that you're here today and you've been idling, you've been making something out to be bigger than it is, instead of putting God first over everything, you're something out, you've been uh, promoting its worth. That's called worship. You talk about how awesome it is. That's called worship. Or you've been serving something that's not God, and you want to, you're willing to repent of that and say, God, I'm turning to you. I want to serve you. I want to declare you. And I will not either. I will not mince words about what the Scripture says. It says what it says, and I will follow it. And if that's you, then you respond. And you come. Let us know what's on your heart today. Let us pray to you. Let us agree together in unity that our God is the God. He is God. And we will stand for Him. And we will let Him reign in us. Would you stand with me as we sing this song? Let God hear your voice. Let God see the intentions of your heart. You can't stop Him anyway. He's looking. He sees what's there. You can't get anywhere. To follow Jesus. Have you decided to follow Jesus? altogether different.